You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Amen. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, team, for leading us this morning. Church, so good to see you this morning. What a gift to be in here, huh? I mean, I got to tell you, I mean, what Matt said at the beginning is right on. I mean, just the, the fact that the Lord even spared this piece for us relatively gave us the opportunity to get in and renovate this and have this gathering space after the last nine weeks of being displaced and now to be back on this property in this neighborhood. It is such a desire to be back as an outpost of the gospel in this neighborhood uh, is so big. And just to be in this gym is doubly meaning for me because I don't know if y'all know this, I didn't realize it until this past year, but 27 years ago, I played in an RA basketball league, Royal Ambassadors Baptist Basketball League. And we played in this gym, 1991. I didn't score any points in here. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I was in this gym playing, so it is crazy. If you told me then that one day I'd be preaching in this gym, I uh, dang sure would have told you to quit mocking me. Uh, but nonetheless, we're here. The Lord has been kind. Romans 5, if you have a Bible, that's where we're going to be here this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardbound black Bible somewhere around you that are still spared from the tornado. They have shards of glass in them. I apologize. Uh, but they should be around you somewhere. Um, we have been trekking through the last few weeks in this season called Advent. Advent's a Latin term that means coming or arrival. It's when we use this season, not just towards Christmas, but for the whole calendar year to begin preparing our hearts as we look back and remind ourselves of the first coming of Christ in that manger in Bethlehem. And then we anticipate the second coming of Christ when he will return in his fullness and make all things right. And, uh, and so we use this season to leverage our hearts to prepare for that. And we have been looking at a few themes, um, certain concepts or ideas that truthfully every single person in this culture is searching for, but how really all of these find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. So we've looked at the theme of hope, the theme of peace, and the theme of joy. Everybody in this culture is looking for hope somewhere. Everybody's looking to find peace somewhere. Everybody's looking to find joy somehow. And yet the scriptures tell us the ultimate fulfill, fulfillment of those are in Jesus Christ, not in lesser things. And in fact, the apostle Paul takes all three of these themes that we've looked at thus far and puts them into one kind of conceptual sentence here in Romans chapter 15, when he says this, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing believing that those are found in Jesus Christ. And those searches of the human soul for hope, peace, and joy, they are yours and they are mine in Christ Jesus, not in lesser things. But I gotta tell you, this morning, we're gonna look at a fourth idea. And I think uh, as great as all those human searches are for hope, peace, and joy, probably the greatest that any human soul is looking for is that of love. And that's what we're going to look at here this morning. Like everybody's searching for love. Everybody's searching for someone or something that they can give their heart to. Someone or something that they can delight in, or maybe even more so, someone or something that would delight in us. Like we're, we're longing, we're searching for that love. The question is, where is it found? And that's what we're going to look at here. Let me ask this question. How many of y'all have ever been in love before? Some, you've loved someone or something you've, you've been in love with, Right? Now, keep your hands up because the next question will equally apply to you. How many of you have had your hearts broken? It should be the same hands. Because in the American experience, 
To love something is ultimately going to be hurt by something. At some time, at some point, if your love is in anything lesser than God, even in good things, they are ultimately at some point going to disappoint you. You can love the Dallas Cowboys all you want, but they will disappoint you. And I hope they don't at 325 today, but nonetheless, they will. You, you can put your love as great as it is in your spouse. And I promise you at some point, your spouse will disappoint you. Any love that is rooted in anything other than God will ultimately disappoint. And I would argue the reason you can love and then have your heart broken, those from a fallible human experience, those two things go hand in hand. I remember that learning that uh, the hard way, the first way in high school, when I began to like have these kindlings of love and searching for, hoping I could find that love in the opposite sex. And I remember there was this one particular girl in our youth group that I kind of had my eyes on. And I thought, man, this could be awesome if this thing worked out. And uh, we went on a couple of dates together. And I'm thinking, this is going great. It's time to seal the deal. And so we, we jump on a bus with our youth group to go to Panama Beach, Florida. And I'm thinking, what a beautiful setting to try to seal the deal on a 16-year-old uh, relationship on the beach of Florida. And so I remember this girl rode together on the bus. We get out there that first night. We go for a walk on the beach. I'm thinking, this is it. And back then, you know, it's like, I don't know what to do with the word love. And I'm trying to muster up the feelings. Is this when I drop this and I let her know? Because I don't know what that is. I mean, what 16-year-old really is cornered the market on this thing? And I began to kind of seal the deal in the language, trying to make this thing exclusive with her. And I'll never forget her response as soon as I drop it. She says, oh, Shay, don't get me wrong. Like, you're an amazing friend. And one day, I think you would make an amazing husband and an amazing father. I just need you to know I'm really looking right now for someone with a stronger physique, a stronger body right now. I'm not lying. That's exactly what she told me. Right there on the beach, Panama Beach, Florida. Never visited that city. I'll never visit it again. And for the last 30 years, I've been working to master this thing right here. You know what I'm saying? Right, babe? That's right. That's right. I thought about dropping her name so to live in podcast eternity, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be gracious there. But I was crushed. And I didn't know, again, and the, the, the term love backfired on me and crushed me. And that would be the first of many, many, many more experiences still to come of to try to love and to be broken by it. I, I remember even trying to play with the word love. I was so gun shy later on when I'm actually fast forward the tapes, you know, seven relationships later, and I'm dating my wife. And uh, I made her a mixtape and I'm going through all the songs on the mixtape and why I chose those for her. And I get to this one song I put on there by an old band called Restless Heart. And it's the song, I'll Still Be Loving You. And I remember when we got to that song, I was like, oh no, but it's not that I love you because I don't really love you. That wasn't a good thing right then. Just totally crushed (laughs) who would be my wife in that moment because I didn't know how to use the word love. Every time I'd used it, it had been... Premature, it had been backfired on me. And so I was afraid to you. And how do you know? And, and here's the deal. In the human experience, again, this becomes so messy for us for a couple of reasons. Number one, in the English language, the word love is so vague, so subjective. I can tell you right now that I love my wife. And in the same breath, I can also tell you I love chips and queso. And unless I clarify... <laughs> 
Which love is which? I've got some serious problems tonight when I get home. Like, the, you, it's so vague, it's so subjective, our English word for love. But even more than that, what you come to find out, biblically speaking, is that apart from Jesus Christ, all human love is ultimately contaminated by a disease called sin. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3, when God asked Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the day that you do, you will surely die. And man in his own heart, deceived by Satan, then pours out his love into the opposite of God, assuming that this would make us God. And sin in that moment entered the world and it contaminated the human heart to such a degree that as a result, even our best motivations, even today, even my best motivations, even in my marriage, to love my wife in my own flesh will ultimately be rooted in selfishness because of sin. Um, I remember reading Paul Tripp's book, uh, What Did You Expect? It's a great book that I give folks for the other side of the altar in marriage and is dealing with some of the disappointments that come in everyone's marriage at some point. And he said, do you know why you're disappointed in marriage? It's because when you married your spouse, and he looks at the husband, the husband, when you stood at that altar and you married your wife, do you know why you married her? You, didn't, you thought you were marrying her because you loved her, but you were marrying her because you actually loved you. And to the woman, you were marrying your husband. You thought you were marrying him because you loved him, but you were actually marrying him because you loved you. You had a you version of your kingdom and you felt that this person was going to complete it. And rather understanding that what Christ came was to destroy both of your kingdoms so that his kingdom would be first and foremost in your marriage. And only that kind of love is what your soul is searching for. And that kind of love is the only kind of love that's going to stable a marriage that has been contaminated by a sinful heart. And in fact, Jeremiah got this. Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 79, the heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. That deceitfulness that Jeremiah speaks of usually conditions our ability to give or receive love in either one of two ways, either based upon surface level emotion or based on performance-based condition. In other words, what human love tends to kind of boil down to is if I feel like loving you, then I will love you. Or if you can give me this in return, then I will love you. It's rooted in either emotion or condition at best. And because of this kind of sinful, selfish definition of human love, because it's explicitly tied to emotion or condition almost all times, then we are always just one changed emotion away or one unmet condition away from having that love robbed out from underneath us, from having that love disappoint us and having our hearts utterly broken. As a result, so many of us keep up this insatiable pursuit of love and we are seeking it so many times in lesser things. We are trying to put this love into a person 
into a fallen person or into a position or a platform or into some other form of substance that we think if only I can get this thing right, this thing will love me and I'll be able to love it. And at the end, it just disappoints us. It's this human love apart from God. That's why C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Four Loves, he writes this of this. There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It'll become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and deviations of love is hell. My goodness, Merry Christmas, everybody. (laughs) Glad you're here. Oh, what he's getting at is this truth. The truth is, is that when we allow our need for love to fall on lesser, fallible, imperfect people or things, then it is only a matter of time before that love disappoints you and breaks your heart, which explains why there's so much brokenness and hurt in our world. Sin has done this. But praise God, because this is where Christmas reminds us that there is a better love that has been offered to us. There's a couple of words in your Old Testament that are used for the word love, that we would translate to love in our English language. A couple of these words, one of the most common words is a Hebrew word, ahava. Say that with me, ahava. It's fun to say, isn't it? Francisco means affection or care for another. And it can be used, and it is used in your Old Testament to describe multiple forms of human love, of ahava, love for one another. But whenever that term is used of God and God's love for his own people, rather than being rooted in mere emotion or condition, it's actually always rooted in both the character and the commitment of God that cannot change. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. No, in fact, you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord ahavad you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors. In other words, I didn't choose to love you because of something characteristic about you. I chose to love you because of something characteristic about me, God says. I made a promise based upon my name, and thus I loved you out of the integrity of my character. But you also notice in Scripture, God's love doesn't just end with his own perfect character, though that would be great, but it also follows through in perfect commitment and action doing something with that love. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 4. Because he ahavad your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, 
He brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength. In other words, God's love isn't just a promise made upon his character, but it's an action that is demonstrated through his commitment. I love you so much, I'm going to do something for you, Israel, that you can't do for yourself, and I'm actually going to deliver you. I'm going to bring you out of slavery because that's what my love will do, even though you don't deserve it. And what's beautiful in Hebrew, Hebrew language is so beautiful. What's beautiful is there's actually an even deeper word that the Old Testament uses for God's love other than ahava. It's a word that refers to his, the fact that his love actually never changes. No matter what emotion, no matter what condition, his love always stays faithful to you. It's the word chesed. Say that with me. Use some spit. Chesed, right? It's a word that means loyal love. Oftentimes in your Bibles, it's translated loving kindness in the Old Testament. But it means loyal love. And I want you to think about this. Israel's enslaved. They are under the Assyrian Empire. Darkness is in the land. It's the same context that we've used in previous weeks of Isaiah 9. Darkness is in the land. They're enslaved. They're really without hope in and of themselves if it weren't for God. And these are people that are immersed in this darkness and slavery and bondage because of their sin, their idolatry, their rebellion towards God. And they had run so far from God, they deserved an eternal abandonment from the love of God if God so choose. But Isaiah gives them a promise that is rooted in the chesed love of God. Isaiah 54.10, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. That phrase, unfailing love, is only one word in Hebrew. It's chesed. It's God's loyal love, his steadfast love, his never failing, never cheating Um, love. It's never unfaithful. It's always faithful. And though the whole earth, Isaiah writes, God is saying to these people, though the whole earth around you is fallen apart, my love for you never will. Though you have run from me in your idolatry, I will never abandon my love for you. It's the loyal love. And so again, what God promised there in Isaiah is that one day this love is going to come rescue you. One day this love is going to enter into your darkness with its marvelous light. And it's going to pull you out in a way that you couldn't do for yourself. It's going to rescue and redeem you, this love. It's going to adopt you and it's going to give you the newness of life, this love will. And Israel, as you know, waited on that promise for 700 years until one night that love appeared under a star in Bethlehem in a manger when love came and walked among us. The love, the Hesed love that God promised came through. And Luke 2 in the traditional passage that we'll read and see again at Christmas Eve even doesn't do the amount of justice of really what was showing up in terms of that love But Paul does when we get to Romans 5. And so again, if you've turned there, Romans 5, I want you to see what this love 
was and how it differs from the love of man, the fallible love of man that we have on our own. Romans 5, first five verses kind of really summarize uh, this whole series of Advent that we've been doing of hope, peace, and joy. Listen to this again. We read this as our call to worship. Therefore, since we, in verse one, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word shalom. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's through him that we have obtained access by faith into his grace by which we stand and that we rejoice in. That's that joy right there. We rejoice in this grace that we've received by faith. And not only that, he says, but also we rejoice in the hope of glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in the sufferings that we are encountering. Remember, we we looked at that last week, this joy that is not only in the good times, it's a joy that anchors you in the sufferings of life. And he says, it's the sufferings that produce endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces what? Hope. It's that biblical hope that comes through faith in Christ. And that hope, verse five, does not put us to shame. It does not disappoint us like human hope. Now, what brings about that perfect hope and peace and joy? It's the end of verse five. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I you to think about that for a moment. The Greek translation of chesed, the closest we can get is the word agape, God's unconditional love that came for us. And the way it demonstrated itself to us was not coming when we had cleaned ourselves up and made ourselves presentable to God and worked on our physical physique. So therefore then they can, he can be with us. No, he came while we were still weak. He came while we were still ungodly meaning we were rebelling against him. This is, this is speaking right to the bondage that Israel had experienced both in Isaiah's day under the Assyrians all the way into uh, the Greeks and into the Romans of this day. And they were under this bondage because of their idolatry. And yet it's in this moment that God comes for them through the love of Jesus Christ. But notice What he says here in verse seven, how God's love differs from man's love. Verse seven is man's love. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. And again, here's what that's talking about. In Jewish nomenclature, a a righteous person was actually lesser than a good person in Jewish nomenclature. A righteous person was one who did what was legal and what was according to the law. They may not be a good person. They may be totally mean in every other way, but they'll just do what's right. Just staunch, pharisaical legalists will do the letter of the law. He says, hardly anybody's going to die for that person. Maybe there's a couple out there. A good person is one who actually went above the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. A good person is one who actually went above and beyond. He says, you find that person out there, that kind of noble person, maybe 
there's some people that will die for that person, that will give their life. What it's arguing here in verse seven is that when it comes to human love, you got to prove your worthiness for me to sacrifice my life for you. If you're not worthy, I ain't loving you like that. But notice verse eight, what about God's love? Notice how it starts, but God. I've heard some of those famous but gods before, right? But God, but is a contrastive term. It stands totally apart from verse seven of human love. We are talking about a completely different kind of love here. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that for a moment. The word shows there, some of your translations say demonstrates, is actually a Greek word that means to introduce. It literally means to step forward and present something as if brand new. God's love is stepping forward against the backdrop of man's love and is introducing to us something completely different. And notice the modifier of the term love, his own love in some of your translations. It's his love. It's it's different than our love. We have never seen a love like this before. It is incomparable to human love. And we had never seen this kind of love until it showed up in a manger and culminated on a cross. Prior to that, we've never never seen a love like this. Y'all realize how insane this kind of love is. And again, I'll say to the parents in the room, imagine someone coming along and say, would you be willing to sacrifice your child, one of your children, for somebody else out there? You'd go, heck no. I ain't giving up my kid for somebody else. Imagine somebody asking you to give up your kid, not just for anybody, but for somebody who has hated you all of your life. Somebody who has mocked you all of your life. Somebody who's made fun of the name of your family with every breath that they've had. And they have given their existence to rebel against you as much as they can. Somebody asks you to give your life for your enemy. You'd go, heck no. And yet, you know what God did? He not only gave his son for you and I as rebels, it would be like then giving your child for your enemy and then taking your enemy and adopting them and making them your son, your child, and then giving them your child's room with all of their possessions. Y'all, that's insane love. We don't have a category for that kind of love. You try to put that love in human terms, they will lock you up in an insane asylum. There is no human love for that. Yet this is the love that God has for you. This is the love that God sent in that manger for you and culminated on that cross to take the penalty that your sin deserved so that you could have the righteousness that you didn't deserve and be adopted as a son and a daughter of God and given the eternal inheritance of his son, Jesus Christ, in the heavenly places, secured and can never be taken away. You know, that kind of love, the apostle John never got over. Like you read the gospel of John, you read first, second, third John, he never gets over this love. First John 4, 9, John says this, in this 
the love of God was made manifest among you. This is how you can tell God's love made its, revealed itself to us. That God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we, sinners, weak, ungodly, should be called children of God. And so we are. It's a beautiful reminder, not only this Christmas, but our entire year of what we've been given in Jesus Christ, the love of God that never fails us, I've got two just exhortations here as we wrap up our time. And not these exhortations, again, not just for Christmas, but I'm thinking the rest of our lives, y'all, is that number one, once you understand this kind of love that has been given to you, rest in it. Receive it. Don't turn away from it. Embrace it. I know some of you right now are experiencing a ton of loneliness. I know Christmas brings out that loneliness. There's some of you that have lost a loved one in the past year or two, and this is your first Christmas without them. And that is a different kind of pain. That is a different kind of loneliness. There are some of you in here that are single right now, and you're looking at your friends who are dating right now like they're a walking Hallmark Christmas show that's going on right now. And it's just inciting anxiety and despair and loneliness in you right now in this season more than any other right now. And the temptation in any season of loneliness and search for love is to lower your standard for a cheaper synthetic version. Don't do it. It is the same temptation when you go grocery shopping when you're hungry. You're going to walk out with a pack of Little Debbies and some powdered donuts because you're going to take the first thing that will satisfy that appetite. And when you are lonely, if you are not careful, you will lower your standard of love and you allow your love to fall on something lesser and it will break your heart. It will not satisfy you. And for those that are going, man, again, how can I, how can I know where that is? I know some shepherds in a Bethlehem field that would tell you that the love you are so desperately looking for has already come for you. It's already here. It came to you not in a bar. It came to you not in a singles mixer, not in a binge watching of a Netflix series. It didn't come to you in a Lexus with a red bow. It came to you in a manger and it culminated on a cross. For God so loved you that he gave his only son for you to rescue you, to forgive your sin, to adopt you as a son or as his daughter. This is a love that Sally Lloyd-Jones calls the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. It's a love that's not predicated upon your appearance or your performance. It's not some fly-by-night feeling of romance that is here today and gone tomorrow. It is an everlasting love that you can fill your cup with every day and it will never run out. That's why Paul concludes at the end of Romans 8, talking about predestination which can be a cuss word in some churches, right? This idea that God loved you before you were even formed, that he chose to come rescue you before you even had your first breath. And when God loves you apart from your choice, apart from a condition that was rooted in you, 
And it is a love that can never be taken away. That's why he writes these words. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Can any of those things separate you from God's love? No, he says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep being slaughtered. Like this is the church being persecuted. Does that mean that God's love has run out on them? No, he says. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. And I would add, no emotion, no condition will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He chose you in love, not because of something he is, you are or you did, but because of who he is and what he did. Long before you ever had a say in it, he loved you. So receive it. Secondly, I would just simply say this, just like we saw with peace a couple of weeks ago, you can't give away horizontally what you have not received vertically. You can't impart what you don't possess. And once you have received this kind of love from God through Jesus Christ vertically, only then will you not just have a model, but you'll actually be supernaturally empowered to love people the way that God has loved us, apart from your flesh, but by his spirit. Many of you, and I'm gonna say this in the most loving way possible, many of you are walking divorces right now waiting to happen because your definition of love is too narrow. It's too conditional, it's too emotional, it's too superficial. And it's because your love has been falsely rooted in self, not in God. Jesus tells us this in John 13, the great commandment, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He's describing agape love right there. The Greek version of chesed, he's describing that kind of love, that you're to love one another the way that I've loved you. And he says, a new commandment, I give you to love each other that way. Now, here's the deal. We've talked about this before in the John series. That's not a new commandment. It was in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 6. That's not a new commandment. What makes it new is the phrase, as I have loved you. Because apart from Jesus showing up, we don't know what love is. We don't know how to love somebody who's not treating us the way that we want to be treated. We don't know how to love an enemy that we feel doesn't deserve our love. Until you go, oh, wait a minute, that was me. And he loved me. He never left me. He never forsake me. And so therefore I can... I can tap into that love and extend that to others who I feel don't deserve it. It's why John wrote in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. I put that verse in my wife's wedding ring because I want her to know from the altar on, I, in my own fleshly love, I am going to disappoint you. But by God's grace, 
If I yield myself to his love, if I understand that he loved me first, now I, through him, can love you as you need to be loved. Even Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, as those who've been loved and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. When you get downwind of yourself and realize who you were when Christ came for you in that manger and on that cross, then you'll understand what kind of love God has designed for you to love the others around you. When you understand that there is nothing that you can do to make God love you anymore, and there is nothing that you can do to make God love you any less because he doesn't love you based upon you. He loves you based upon him and the work of his son. Man, that frees you up to go give that love away. Like somebody who just won a lottery that they didn't deserve and now can go give it to bless those who don't deserve it as well. Church, understand this Christmas, the hope that you're looking for is not rooted in a probability or a possibility. It is rooted in a promise that is found in Jesus that can never change. The the peace that you're looking for is not man's peace, which is just the absence of conflict. It is a peace that is the presence of wholeness found in Jesus Christ. The joy that you're looking for is not a joy that is rooted in man's acceptance of you, but is one that has already been given to you by God's acceptance. And the love that you're looking for is not a love that is rooted in emotion or condition, but it's a love that has been given to you freely in the character and commitment of God that will never change. And it frees you up to go love like he loved. Man, let that be where your love is found this Christmas and forever. Amen.